Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. In so many third world countries around the earth, medical care has not been what it is here in the Western world. (laughs) When, When I was in Africa, I visited a hospital and I can still distinctly remember looking at their their surgical room. It was a one-room building and it did not have any windows. Now, when I say it did not have any windows, I mean there were several holes in the walls, but no glass or anything covering them. The surgical scrubs and the linens were drying on racks outside the building and, and getting ready for the next surgery. And this was a hospital in a city in Africa. Small villages were a lot less fortunate. And most small villages just simply rely on witch doctors to heal what ails you. Now, here in the, in the U.S. and in other first world countries, we have taken pride in the fact that we have an advanced healthcare system of doctors and and researchers and and hospitals that we can follow and trust and to to diagnose and give us the the right treatment for us. And I have never been one that has had a serious mistrust of the medical community. I go to the doctor when needed. Usually I, I am a man, of course. And, and, and have have had a few negative experiences with healthcare, but for the most part, I have put my trust in them to do the right thing and and tell me what the best course of action is. The rationale was that you know God gave us a brain and He gave us knowledge and wisdom and and we are to use it. I have to admit though that I no longer have the same level of trust. And and that I used to, and, and, and apparently neither does a large chunk of the population. I can safely say that it, that it really is for good reason. The healthcare industry has garnered this mistrust and brought it on themselves. And they have given in to political pressure and the allure of money. And in a, in a series of articles from the Daily Wire comes this. This is from Christina Buttons, and she says the the exponential rise in adolescent girls adopting a trans identity and seeking medical transition should give everyone pause, but very, but few are willing to speak out against the prevailing political narrative. Proponents of child sex changes frequently point to the U.S.-based medical authorities that currently endorse its practice and dismiss any and all criticisms. Pediatric gender trans, uh, gender affirming care is often touted as the medical conscious, despite little evidence to support its practice. Prominent Democrats, and influencers, and, and even comedians like John Oliver and John Stewart have made the appeal to authority, a logical f- fallacy in which the, the opinion of a Um, purported authority like the U.S.-based medical associations is used in place of reason and evidence. Quote, arguments from authority carry little weight. Authorities have made mistakes in the past. 
that's the quote from the late great Carl Sagan, as he said in his his prolific book, The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. Quote, they will do so again in the future. Perhaps a better way to say it is that in science, there are no authorities. At most, there are experts. That is what what, uh, Carl Sagan added. Now, U.S.-based medical groups have used poor evidence to support their positions and have refused to conduct systematic reviews. Instead, they have devoted themselves to prompting deeply flawed and ideologically driven research. I mean, this is according to, this is not just me saying this. This is according to Lior uh, Sapir, a, a Manhattan Institute fellow who wrote uh, his PhD dissertation on a rapid proliferation of the transgender rights movement. Now, arguably, more pro- progressive countries like Sweden and Finland and England have have produced the necessary evidence uh, reviews and 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 has the the Florida's Board of of Medicine with each concluding that the risks of um, pediatric medical transition far outweigh any purported benefits. This results in the closure of prominent gender clinics, uh, strict uh, restrictions on the use of cross-sex hormones, and banning gender-related surgeries for minors. Italy, Australia, and Spain's medical bodies have also recently raised similar concerns. In the United States, children are are put in the driver's seat of their own sex change operations, despite the fact that a body of research indicates that roughly 60 to 90% of children who identify as transgender, but who do not socially or medically transition, will no longer identify as transgender in adulthood, and many will grow up to be gay or lesbian adults. The gender-affirming model of care discourages therapy that could help minors feel more comfortable in their bodies and instead provides puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgeries to affirm minors in their chosen trans identity. Many young women who formerly identified as transgender, have come forward detailing the accusation and the um, allegations progress of of obtaining gender transition uh, services. Sometimes after a single phone call, they get these things. They describe the clinicians who neglected to assess their medical health before prescribing the cross-sex hormones, which can cause irrevitable changes to the body, and referrals to have their breasts removed. Several detransitioners, as as they're called, have even filed malpractice lawsuits against the medical and mental health providers, and, and more lawsuits are anticipated in the coming years. Now, the medical establishment is not immune from mistakes and, and corruption or succumbing to political pressure. Many past catastrophes were the result of putting blind trust in authorities and dismissing critics of the the dominant narrative. Perhaps it's time to take a lesson from history. As Spanish-American philosopher George Santillana said, quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, while the United States looks back in horror 
as such atrocities during the, the first half of the 20th century as the Tuskegee experiments, uh, lobotomies, and, and and committing women to asylums after diagnosing them with female hysteria, the medical scandals that have taken place in recent decades are seemingly overlooked or forgotten entirely. I mean, how about the theory of, of a chemical imbalance, that the medical establishment played an integral role in the promotion of now discredited theory of depression, which antidepressants, which which is a seventeen billion dollar a year industry that has been that is actually set to grow to nearly twenty two billion dollars a year by twenty twenty seven, and it purported this to be correct. The chemical imbalance theory, which posits the that that depression is caused by serotonin. Um, and, and the abnormalities in the brain of serotonin was widely endorsed by the medical establishment since 1980s. Not surprisingly, the, popula- the, the popularization of this theory coincided with the introduction of Prozac, and which is an antidepressant that was marketed as a treatment for depression by increasing levels of serotonin. Randomized double-blind placebo-controlled studies, the RDBPCs, considered the gold. These are considered the, the gold standard of ep- epidemiological studies. Have continually found that antidepressants are no more effective than placebos at re- re- t- uh, at uh, treating depression in the long term. However, th- there may be some people with mood regulations uh, in, in the short term. But despite the antidepressants not doing what they claim to accomplish, approximately 13% of American adults take antidepressants uh, annually. The, the rate is much higher actually in women, with 18% being prescribed the medication. Man, that's almost one in five. Over the years, scientists and researchers have attempted to put the chemical imbalance myth to rest but were largely ignored. And it seems that little else was done to correct the public's perception until a systematic umbrella review in July of last year that found that 85 to 90% of the public still believes that depression is caused by low serotonin or a chemical imbalance. And, 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 it, and they attempted to finally put that narrative to rest. But this this chemical imbalance theory was heavily touted by the pharmaceutical industry, but also by reputable professional organizations like American Psychiatric Association. The Umbrella Review determined that during the period of 1990 and 2010, there was considerable coverage of the support of the chemical imbalance theory of depression in the medical literature. Quote, Our research provides evidence that the psychiatric profession acted as a willing and often enthusiastic conduit of the serotonin theory of depression. This is what the report reads. the, the, The profession must bear some responsibility for propagandizing and, and an unsupported theory and, and the mass use of antidepressant drugs that has accompanied it and with all the problems that it has produced. And speaking of problems, how about the uh, opioids? 
The pharmaceutical industry is largely to blame for the opioid epidemic, but the national catastrophe that struck the U.S. claiming nearly one million lives could have have could not have taken place without doctors prescribing the opioids and, and the medical bodies and journals promoting them. The medical establishment uncritically adopted many of the marketing ploys used by the manufacturers of opioids against their better judgment. Now, pain clinics dispensing these drugs were once thought to, to be legitimate and necessary while operating under the medically accepted guise of pain management. And after people caught on to their illegal conduct, approximately 600 pain clinics were shut down and given the stigmatized nickname pill mills to denote the cavalier way they dispense dangerous narcotics uh, to addicted patients. Now, in, in conclusion with the in, in collusion with the, the pharmaceutical companies, one of the leading medical societies, the American Pain Society, the APS, uh, instituted the, the marketing campaign, Pain as a Fifth Vital Sign. And this, this happened back in 1996. The, the declaration did not come with a, a device which could, you know, objectively measure pain, uh, as was done with, with various vital signs like blood pressure and pulse and, and uh, respiratory rate and, and, you know, temperature, you know, that type of thing, making it the first and only purported vital sign that was subjectively determined by the patient. Now, the APS was eventually shut down after investigations found that nearly $1 million dollars from the leading opioid makers, including Purdue Pharma, that uh, which is the maker of OxyContin. Now, as incredible as it sounds, the completely farcical pain as a fifth vital sign campaign was initially widely supported by many medical societies, including the American Medical Association, the American College of Surgeons, the and, and the, the Joint Commission and the American Academy of Family Physicians, as well as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I, I mean, and not only those, as we, we saw support from the, the regulatory organizations and, and pharmaceutical companies as well. And of course, the opioid epidemic, you know, couldn't have, have taken off without the help, and, well, and failure of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, that gave OxyContin a special label describing it as non-addictive opioid, despite all the evidence to the contrary. But how about Vioxx? In the 1990s, scientists at the pharmaceutical company Merrick um, exaggerated the, the positive effects and downplayed the increasing cardiovascular risk of an arthritis drug, Vioxx, in order to get FDA approval. Now, when the drug was approved in 1999, it quickly proved fatal, but stayed on the market for five years. FDA scientist Dr. David Graham estimated that the drug had resulted in 55,000 premature deaths and 100,000 heart attacks in the U.S. alone, and testified before the Senate that it was the single greatest drug uh, safety catastrophe in the in in history of this country, or even in the history of the world. 
Although Merrick is largely responsible for the loss of life, systemic failures at the FDA allowed Vioxx to remain on the market. According to a report from the the Union of Concerned Scientists, a, a nonprofit science advocacy group, the report outlined how the FDA attempted to censor criticism from scientists trying to raise the alarm, allegedly by threatening and intimidating the whistleblowers. Sound familiar? Because of the nature of fear and, and lack of, of oversight in the drug safety system, Dr. Graham said that the FDA was incapable of protecting America against another Vioxx. But we don't have to just look at drugs. I mean, it's no secret that the pharmaceutical industry or even big tobacco has influenced scientists and and science for financial gain. But in recent years, the food industry has come under fire for similar misdeeds. One of the food industry's most effective tactics is the funding of nutrition research that that favors their company's products. In the 1960s, the Sugar Research Foundation, or SRF, known today as the Sugar Association, you may not know them by that, paid scientists to publish influential research that downplayed the role of sugar and promoted dietary fat as the cause of coronary heart disease. The scandal only came to light in 2016 during a special issue of the Journal of American Medicine Association, Medical Association, that exposed the internal industry's documents. In 2016, the Associated Press investigated the candy trade groups that funded the flattering research after journalists came across a study that said, quote, children who eat candy tend to weigh less than those who don't, unquote. (laughs) If only that were true, right? In 2015, the New York Times wrote an expose on Coca-Cola and the millions of dollars in research it paid to shift the blame from cutting calories to exercise in order to maintain a healthy weight and downplay the link between sugary beverages and obesity. And we all remember, even as as recently as 2020 to present, the U.S. medical governing bodies have have warned um, yeah, warranted ample criticism of their pandemic response. I mean, COVID was a novel virus, which allows some leeway. But even America's leading health agency, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, has copped to making copious mistakes and pro- and uh, prompting the the dramatic overhaul in management. I mean, this is this is from them. I mean, here here's the quote: "To be frank." We are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications. That was said by Rochelle Walensky, that she's the director of the CDC in a statement in August. Now, history has shown that uh, atrocities can happen when we put our blind trust in authorities and ignore the warning signs of a pending disaster. The the aforementioned Carl Sagan knew this, which is why he said that authorities must prove their contentions, just like everyone else. Quote, one, one of the great commandments of science is 
mistrust arguments from authority. <laughs> That's what Sagan used to say. And, and too many such arguments have proved too painfully wrong. But even, even when proven wrong, these experts, so-called experts, appear incapable of admitting to their errors, if you can call it that. The, the, the chair of the University of California, San Francisco, the UCSF Department of Medicine, stated that, the large, that, that in large gatherings, he plans to wear a mask likely forever. Bob Watcher, who's he's, he's 65 and, and whose Twitter bio asserts that his career is this. What happens when a poli-sci major becomes an academic physician? That's what he put it on there. And those political predilections seem clear enough because of his leftists that he retweets. Uh, he issued a, a Twitter thread detailing why he has decided to buck the prevailing trend and take what seems like extreme measures. Quote, some folks continue asking what I'm doing was uh, COVID behavior. He began uh, by saying in the Bay Area, I'm now okay with indoor dining and removing my mask for small group gatherings. And then he acknowledged that he hasn't had COVID and is fully vaxxed and had uh, by event in, in, in September. My main fear is long COVID, he said, which I peg as 5% possibility per COVID case. He, he admitted that, that this leads me to, to being comfortable indoors without a mask when the effective case rate is less than 10 to 100 KD in my region. This number is based off of my own risk tolerance and risk factors. But after citing statistics regarding wastewater, COVID hospitalizations, the UCSF hospitals, um, uh, asystematic test positive rate, he offered his plan going forward, including eating outdoors and testing before he and his family arrived for a meal at a Palm Springs friend's house. Now, Now then... He, he segued to the, this. He said, quote, public transit theaters and other large gatherings plan to wear a mask. Always in KN95. Why not wear the, a good mask if you're going to wear a mask? I'm going to do that likely forever. I'm uh, comfortable taking it off briefly to eat on a long flight, but will keep it on um, if, I, uh, if and when I can. Regarding playing poker, get this, here's a guy you don't want to invite over to your next poker match, right? Regarding playing poker with a small group, he says, I'm now comfy playing with a small vaccinated group, like less than eight, without testing. I'll lobby until they throw me out to keep the doors and windows open during the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's not getting invited to mine. <laughs> Quote, as always, I'm telling anyone uh, what they, I, I, I'm not telling anyone what they should do, he wrote. Perfectly reasonable people have looked at all the odds, or decided not to, and chosen to live life like it's 2019. Wow. Most of them will do just fine. They'll have a higher odds of getting COVID than me, but 
few will get super sick, particularly if up to date on vax, really. <laughs> and most won't get long COVID, either prolonged symptoms or be victim of elevated long-term risk of stroke, MI, or cognitive decline. Now, quote, just because we're all tired of this doesn't change the risk and thus doesn't change the way I think about managing them, he concluded. I mean, here, here is a top medical professional here, and yet he doesn't understand basic medical research and facts. And according to an analysis of the gold standard of evidence-based review, wearing medical and surgical masks like an N95 respirator to, to stave off the transmission of respiratory viruses may be largely ineffective. The Co uh, Cochrane Institute uh, updated its review from 2020, examining 78 global studies compromised of, of, the, of more than a million people. And they found that wearing a mask in a community reduced the, the risk of getting the flu and COVID-like illnesses by 5%. Yeah, quote, irrespective of the limitations of the study, its results indicated that the true impact of medical surgical masks and N95 slash P2s uh, respirators on the transmission of respiratory viruses is at best small. But the, the, there, there are some professors, uh, like this, this professor, Urbanhard uh, Bonschnott, who is a professor of, of physics and director at, uh, at the Max uh, Planck Institute of Dynamics and Self-Organization in uh, Gottenen. Uh, con, uh, he, uh, he, he countered this. He said, quote, the Cochrane study is not very meaningful. Our studies have clearly shown that masks are physically wonderful protection. <laughs> and he's, he slammed the author of this, of this study saying in one sentence, they write that masks don't work. And a paragraph later, they admit that they, they really can't say it. Well, the researchers conducted, conducted six trials during the COVID pandemic, two from Mexico and one each from Denmark, Bangladesh, England, and Norway. Quote, we, in, uh, we included 12 trials, 10 cluster RCTs, comparing medical surgical mass virus, no mass to prevent the spread of viral uh, respiratory illness, two trials with healthcare workers and 10 in the community. This is what the researchers wrote. Wearing masks in the community probably makes little or no difference to the outcome of influenza-like illness, COVID-19-like illness compared to not wearing masks. So, you know, they, you know, they do go on to state that there is a whole host of reasons why, you know, we see these results and they may vary from study to study. But what is becoming plainly evident is that our medical and healthcare industry is just that. It's an industry and they are in it for the dollars and patient concern is not a top priority. Take what was just released about Pfizer. I mean, Project Veritas released a video Thursday alleging showing a Pfizer executive expressing concern about its company company's R, uh, mRNA vi, uh, vaccines and their impact on female reproductive health. Jordan Tristan Walker is Pfizer's Director of Research and Development and, and Strategic Operations, mRNA Scientific Planner. That's, that's his title. 
And he recently appeared to tell an undercover Project Veritas journalist that the company has considered using direct evolution to manipulate coronavirus and create more potent variants and vaccines. More footage captured by the, the journalist allegedly shows the executive revealing that Pfizer is not entirely sure why the vaccine is impacting women's menstrual cycles, postulating that the effects could be evidence of hormonal disruptions. He says there is something irregular about their menstrual cycles, so people will have to investigate that down down the line because that's a little concerning, he says. I mean, the vaccine shouldn't be interfering with that, he said. There's something happening, but we don't always figure it out. Wow. He also says here, he says, I hope we don't find out that somehow this mRNA lingers in the body. He says, because it has to be affecting something hormonal to impact menstrual cycles. Wow. This is a guy, this is one of the main guys at Pfizer. But but we've but we've been told that these mRNA vaccines are safe and effective, right? When when in actuality they can be neither. And if you if you question why we see these weird side effects in boys and and in women, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist or a right wing wacko or or both, right? Now we see that we had information all along, and and yet nothing was said. And doctors and researchers were very happy playing along with the liberal narrative to get vaxxed or, or be shamed. And the medical industry has a long, long way to go to get their reputation back again, if they ever do. Now, you may agree with me on this. You may disagree with me on this, but I would love to hear from you on it. And of course, you can always do that at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.